Welcome, everyone. This is Human Capital, a goal span podcast, and I'm Jeff Hunt. On Human Capital, I interview top business thought leaders to uncover the deeply human aspect of work. Conflict. How many of you listening to this episode love conflict? If you're like me, you don't welcome conflict into your life, but the reality is that we must deal with it almost every day at work. The other reality is that when engaging with conflict in a healthy way at work, it leads to many positive outcomes. These include better decisions, better relationships, greater creativity and innovation, and most importantly, better internal and external alignment with what you are thinking, feeling, and doing. I would suggest that doing this well is perhaps one of the greatest leadership skills. My guest today is an expert in this realm. Steve Roof has spent a career helping people, teams, and businesses, large and small, navigate this tricky space. Steve was originally trained in the law, but is now a mediator who is also trained in several psychological modalities, which he uses to help his clients get unstuck in the midst of conflict. Steve received his bachelor's degree from Harvard University and his doctorate of law from Michigan Law School. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show today. And this is such a topic that most people avoid because they just don't like it. Conflict. <laughs> yes, conflict is a dirty word in most people's minds. It really is. And so I'm excited to hear your take on this topic because like I said in the intro, it's not always negative. There's so many positive outcomes that can result from healthy conflict. I think the key is defining the difference between healthy conflict and unhealthy conflict. But before we do all that, I would love to rewind the movie to the beginning of your career and have you share who or what prompted you to become a mediator, originally getting trained in the law, but eventually becoming a mediator and landing in this space. Well, if you go back even before law school, uh, my, my first memory of a mediation was one of my best friends throughout elementary, junior, and high school was a guy named Steve. He had an older brother, Mike. They were roommates. And I remember maybe sophomore year in college, I was visiting back home in Texas, visiting for spring break, and the two roommate brothers got into a big fight and were not speaking to each other. And for some strange reason, I found myself uh, doing some Henry Kissinger shuttle diplomacy back and forth between them, sort of explaining each of the other person's point of view to the one I was talking to. And it met with some success and some surprise. They were both kind of surprised at what they learned through the process. And I gave it no more thought. I continued in college and then to law school, et cetera. But many years later, was attracted back um, to the same uh, dynamic in, in the legal and business field. We're gonna jump in deeper to conflict and regarding mediation, I think there's probably a number of listeners that don't really have a detailed understanding of what mediation actually is. Can you provide an overview? Sure, so most mediation that takes place in the United States today takes place in a court-ordered setting, such that the judge uh, requires the parties to mediate. 
maybe 30, 35 years ago, mediation was rarely used in the courts in the United States. And a few jurisdictions began to experiment with it. And what they noticed was that to their surprise, about 75% of cases that the judges sent to mediation settled. And so as you can imagine, judges all across the country jumped on this opportunity to get back control of their dockets, control of their time, a chance to play a little more golf maybe. And so uh, since then, basically in all 50 states now, in state and federal court, you cannot get a trial uh, without first attempting mediation. The judge will not give you a trial date uh, if you haven't first attempted mediation. So it's pretty much ubiquitous, ubiquitous in the court system. And then it's crept in to usage in a number of places in community, use between police and civilians in a number, between victims and offenders in a number of cases. Um, so it's beginning to be used elsewhere. Uh, also, it's beginning to be used earlier in conflict than sometimes before it gets into the court system. Uh, I served on a task force that the American Bar appointed to look into this issue of could we save a lot of litigation costs and court resources if we could resolve much earlier, if we could intervene much earlier in the conflict. And a few companies have tried it, Georgia Pacific tried it, General Electric tried it, Motorola, Toro Lawnmowers, all of them found great success with the program. Uh, there was resistance, uh, things that keep it from being adopted, but it is successful when used. Interesting. So it's really taken on a completely different form, it sounds like, over the past, what, 20 or 30 years? That's right. In this country, it's evolved. It's used differently in other parts of the world. It's more in consensus-based societies like those in East Asia. Uh, it's been informally a part of conflict resolution for much longer. Okay. And eventually we're going to get to conflict in the workplace and how uh, it can be used in a positive way. But just to understand the structure of mediation a little bit more, talk about what that looks like between the parties. Do they, is it a, a one day event? How, how does that actually work? It can be one day, it usually is a one day event. Um, for more complex cases that might involve multiple parties uh, or multiple complex issues, then sometimes it uh, is a multiple day event. Sometimes you go all day and it turns out that the parties need more information in order to be able to make an intelligent decision. So you adjourn with a specific recommencement date of several weeks later is usually the way it would work. Um, the parties come together in a room. Generally, they meet together in what's called joint session. Uh, and shortly after that, you, they break them up. They are broken up into separate rooms. And it's the mediator's job to shuttle back and forth, um, trying to find common ground. Shuttle diplomacy. That's a lot of what it is, yes. <laughs> and I should say, this is, this is about half of what I do now. The other half of what I do uh, has nothing to do with the court system and nothing to do with formal mediation, even though it grew out of it. That involves working with family-owned businesses and corporate teams using the same skills, using the same tools. But the big difference is that these are people that are not just going to come together for one day and try to resolve a conflict. These are people that have to continue to work together ongoingly. Uh, and there's conflict within their team or in the family business that they deem has ceased to be constructed. And so they want help in, in transforming what conflict they have into more constructive conflict. 
So that's a, the other half of what I do. And that's more on an ongoing engagement basis versus the one-offs of, of court-ordered mediation. Got it. I have a unique appreciation for family businesses since I used to run one in my former career. And it seems as though the, uh, the need to be able to resolve conflict in a healthy way among family businesses is uh, critically important because it could lead either to the end of the family business or to success, right? Yes, and it has obvious repercussions outside the business, um, but both negative and positive. If, they, if there's unresolved conflict in the business, that's going to spill over into the family. If you can transform that into creative conflict within the business, that's going to spill over in a positive way into the family with increased respect, uh, increased compassion and empathy, I often find. So it, either the family business is unique in that there's these multipliers out to a second level, whether positive or negative. Yeah, and it seems very complicated because in families, you're dealing with the family of origin. So you, you may have aunts, uncles, sisters, and brothers in the business, uh, mothers, fathers, and growing up with those people. And then you're dealing with the separate differences around the business itself and the cross-pollination between those. So that seems very tricky to me. Yes, it is tricky because usually, especially with some of the psychological tools that I use, like IFS, um, and some others, often the, the people that created these models have found to no great surprise to your listeners, I'm sure that some of the problems have their in conflict, have their root in family of origin. So if the conflict is playing out today between two siblings in a business really has its root 20 years ago, uh, and the resentments uh, have built up from unresolved conflict that's old and uh, embedded, um, it's again a magnifier effect. It's dragging them down both in their family relationship and their business relationship. If you can resolve it, they're freed of that problem in the, in the business relationship and the family relationship. So once again, it has this multiplier out to a second level. Yeah, it seems as though in some cases, you may actually not be dealing with the primary conflict at hand. It's something that's cumulative from the past that is amplifying the conflict in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise. Is that kind of what you're saying? It can get very complicated, especially where you have multiple generations involved because the parents that are in conflict with their adult children in the business may well be the ones who installed the buttons that they are then pushing, right? They are the ones that sometimes created these patterns in these kids. So that gets quite complicated uh, at times. When do disputes actually end up coming to you? Well, it depends. I sort of divided my work into two, the two halves, right? The stuff that's court ordered uh, and that which is more working with family business teams or corporate business teams. Most of the, so the latter category, I'm working with people in the aerospace industry because that's just the field that I practice law in for many years. And so that's where my, a lot of my expertise and experience lies. So for that category, um, I would say it is changing in that people are coming to me earlier and earlier because they recognize the value in, in intervening um, before things get destructive. Uh, on the other side, on the court ordered side, they usually come to me when the judge sends them. 
you mentioned earlier your work includes one day mediations and also ongoing work with your clients. How do these two different approaches, you know, how are they, how do they differ from each other? Well, in the one day mediation experience, this is probably the only time these people are ever going to meet. Um, sometimes in aerospace, the players are quite large and there's not that many. For example, there's only a few um, large commercial jet airframe manufacturers in the world. And there's only a few companies that make the engines for that aircraft. So those people are kind of a hybrid. They're kind of like a family business in a way. They have to figure out a way to resolve their dispute and still stay friends because there aren't enough other suppliers in the world for them to do business with. But all, most of the other ones, if they're not those mega players, they're smaller players, they won't, they won't do business again because of this conflict. So they just want to get in, get a resolution and get out. So I find them less motivated to uh, look inward to look at themselves, to look at their own role, to, they don't see this as a leadership challenge. They see this as a obstacle in the road to be removed. Uh, on the other side, when I'm working with corporate teams or business uh, or teams that are not a family, uh, family or non-family, um, there's usually a higher level of motivation. They've committed to come to me more often. There's usually more pain involved that's motivated them to come, not just the pain of litigation, but the pain of having to work with people that are not, that are not getting along. Um, so that motivational level, I find causes people to be much more willing to look inward, um, to, to try to see what are the real dynamics here and how do we get to, through to where we can co-create again or co-create better. Whereas in litigation, people are not looking to do that at all. They just wanna settle and go home. I would love for you to share a little bit about this IFS model and maybe remind our listening audience what it is. Sure, so we're all familiar in this culture with being asked for an easy question, for example, what do you, what do you want for dinner? Well, part of me feels like Italian, but I don't know, part of me feels like Chinese. So this recognition that we have uh, various interests within us, interest groups, parts, whatever you wanna call them, and we have different impulses. Um, and I hear the same thing in the mediation room. Um, part of me wants to just settle this damn case and move on. And part of me wants to punish this son of a bitch for what he did to the company. Well, those are strong pulls in opposite directions. And so what we do in IFS is we recognize the validity of both of those points of view. Both of those points of view have a lot of value. We don't lose that, but we don't necessarily want to let either one take over because that might not lead to the best, the best and highest decision, the best outcome. So what we try to do is hear from all the voices, but get taken over by none. Um, our culture, in our culture, there's this pretense that there's we have so-called unified mind. We have a single mind. We don't have this internal war going on. We, we disguise that because it's vulnerable to expose that, that we have that sometimes it's an ambivalence, sometimes it's ambiguity inside. So to, to protect ourselves, we cover that up. But if we slow down and look inside, inevitably we find that we have what in IFS we call these polarizations, these pulls in different directions. Uh, and our job is to listen to each of those voices, but don't let any of those voices drive the bus. 
And if and often, like if you, everyone's familiar with the, either from themselves or from someone they know with this notion of someone losing their temper. Well, that's someone getting taken over by a part that's very angry about something. Um, not to say that the, that the person doesn't have a right to be angry, but it doesn't always serve them best to let that part of themselves take over. That makes sense. Yeah, and so what happens when the person loses their temper and this part takes over and that's the part driving the bus, as I say, what we wanna do is what we call unblend, which doesn't mean to get rid of this part. It means just to get some space, to get it to step back so that we can step back into the leadership role, our true self can step back in the leadership role. We can hear from that part that's lost its temper. We can hear from another part that maybe had its feelings hurt by whatever happened. We can hear by hear from yet another part that is upset at the part that loses its temper and says, you always embarrass us like this. We can hear from everyone. And then we have a little bit of silence and space and we can think and decide, here's how I wanna respond. So it's this act of unblending that's uh, central to the work that I do uh, when people are hijacked by part of themselves during the conflict process. And it, and it sounds like what you're saying is that in, inside each one of us, we, we actually have this strong internal leader that doesn't have to go to extreme places. And sometimes we are taken over by these extreme viewpoints, which may be polarized. But ultimately, if we can listen to what's going on internally to these various parts of us, uh, we can really enter into conflict in a healthier way, rather than this extreme unhealthy way. Is that right? That's right. And to those of your listeners who are familiar with any kind of systems theory, this is a systems theory uh, model. And the model, as I was listening to you, I was realizing everything you said applies at the next level out also. So that there is within uh, the corporate environment, there's a leader, there's a designated leader, the CEO or whatever title he might have. And then there are the other players on the team, some of whom will often get polarized, will have patterns of getting uh, the, the person who wants to take the most aggressive approach on the new sales campaign. And the person who feels like that's way too out there and needs to retrain. And you'll see on corporate teams that people regularly get into these polarizations that once again, they have value. And that's why we say all parts are welcome. All voices are welcome. Um, it doesn't mean that they're welcome to do whatever they want to do, but it means that they're welcome to be a part of the system and to speak up. And then the, this leader that you're talking about within us listens to all of that. Or if it's in a team, the leader of the company or the family business listens to all that. And from all of that input makes a decision, but without getting, um, I sometimes say, sucked into anybody's story, um, but appreciating everyone's story, but not getting sucked into anyone's story. Yeah, sometimes we have to disagree, but commit, right? That's right, that's yeah. right. And I'm also reflecting on how analogous it is, what you're describing, the internal inner working and system of each person and the external cultural interworkings of an organization, right? That's right. Um, it's a system, uh, just one system up, one level higher up, um, but with the same sorts of dynamics and the same uh, internal laws of physics, as we say. Exactly. So one of the things you sort of mentioned in several different ways is the topic of curiosity. 
And reminding our listeners that like really what we're trying to get engaged with here is, is what does healthy conflict look like? So it seems to me that curiosity is vital in order to have healthy conflict, wouldn't you say? Yes, and when I'm working with corporate teams, one of the questions I ask when I do a breakout session with an individual is, so the other person who, with whom you are regularly in elevated conflict, heated conflict, do you have any curiosity about what is driving them, what they're, where, how they came to that point of view? And that their level of curiosity is usually an indicator to me of how blended they are with their own part. Oh, interesting. So that, that's a sort of a barometer. So what you're looking for, ideally, and what you, I would tell your listeners, if you find yourself in a high conflict situation, if you're, if you're looking for a shift, see if you can just for one moment add a little bit of curiosity about what that person on the other side of the table is thinking, what their motivation is, or bringing in a little bit of NBC, which is Marshall Rosenberg's work, what need are they trying to fulfill? What is the need they're trying to fulfill by this behavior that looks so crazy and, and counterproductive to me? Because if there's one thing I've learned through this work, people are always trying to fill a legitimate need in what they do. Now their strategies can be wacko. The strategies that they're trying to get there can be destructive and ridiculous. I mean, just look at addictive behaviors. Those strategies are quite destructive, but they have a logic to them. They have an internal logic of self-soothing or checking out or whatever, dissociating. There's always an internal logic to these parts and what they're doing to these strategies. It also feels like being curious is absolutely just a plain good leadership skill. I think so. It's got, I think it's got to be one of the highest leadership skills. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a time to close the book and decide and take action and move forward. But if, when you're in the creative process, when you're in the collaborative process, I think curiosity is, for, at least for me, is the highest value. Um, to really be uh, sincerely interested in what's going on for the other people and what they have to bring to the table. If you're not curious, then there's a problem that problem either is with you or with them. It may be that they have demonstrated over time that they don't bring value, in which case you're not curious and they shouldn't probably be there on the team. Uh, if they do bring value and you're not curious, that means the problem is with you and you need to work a little bit with your curiosity. So Steve, tell us a little bit about the protective strategies that people develop as a result of all these parts. So you'll see people, some people shut down in meetings if, if they introduce an idea and it's not well received, sometimes people shut down. Uh, other people take the same example. They introduce an idea, it's not well received, become defensive and start get dug in around their idea. Um, there's a variety of strategies that people take to protect themselves. And that's what, that's what I try to help my clients see is, do you see that this is about protection? These, they're protecting themselves from some feeling of being humiliated or embarrassed or shamed or whatever. There's a multiplicity of things that people are protecting, which we could go into more if that's useful, but it's important just as you're in the meeting and you're a third party, you can learn a lot by just watching what's happening and the way that people erect their, their protection and take on these strategies, which may not always make so much sense. Um, and that's when, as we were saying, they may do things that are increasingly not relational. Um, because if you just think about it, what's, 
What's more important, safety or connected? Safety is always first, right? You've got to, first you've got to make sure that you're safe yourself before you're then able to establish connection with another. So people are reluctant to um, acknowledge this truth, but the truth is that in business meetings, um, emotional safety gets threatened frequently. This is a common, common thing in the human experience. And people are reluctant to admit that because it's just too vulnerable. But the vulnerability is often where the real juice is. If you can get to the juiciness, I mean, the, the bigger the conflict, I see big conflict as juicy. This tells me, look at all this passion in the room. Look at all this energy in the room, just ready to be directed in a constructive way. So very often what happens is that in, uh, either in a session together or session one-on-one -on -one with me, we're able to get below the surface of the protection to what it is that they're feeling below that, the vulnerability, the fear of being shamed or whatever else. That's just a part and not to dismiss it, but it's, a, it's very empowering and liberating to realize that's not all of who they are. That's just a part that holds that experience from some time in the past. And it doesn't need to run the show. There's someone bigger and more grown up here to run the show. Um, so my favorite times, yeah, some of my favorite times in this work are when it's happening with two or three team members in the room and one person is able to say, ah, okay, I see. I see what I'm, this is what's coming up for me. I have a part that's really dug in around this because of X, Y, Z and show a little bit of the vulnerability. And what that does is opens up the space for the other two people in the room to also, oh, he's not dug in anymore. I don't have to fight anymore. And they begin to see the role of their own parts. I, I was working with a mother and son in business recently. After about six months, I got a text from the son who said, uh, my mom and I just had this incredible experience. We started to spiral into a fight in the business. And all of a sudden she looked at me and said, oh, what part is that? And I looked at her and said, well, what part is that in you? And we both just took a deep breath and we saw what was going on. We laughed, we figured out what was happening. We moved on. It was so much more creative and so much more positive. Hmm. It really goes right back to what you just said a minute ago, which is curiosity. They both allowed themselves to have enough curiosity about each other and also what's going on inside themselves to really pivot that conversation to a much healthier place. <clears throat> That's right. It's all about uh, curiosity versus protection. The more you're in a highly protective mode, you've got no curiosity left. The more you're in a highly curious mode, the protection's probably quite low and you're able to be more real, more human, more vulnerable, and in my experience, more creative. Interesting. And let me just clarify something because I think it's an important nuance. I believe that people oftentimes mistake curiosity for acceptance, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the case. So in other words, if you and I are in deeply oppositional places, and I get curious about what your motivation is and why you're feeling so strong, it doesn't mean that I'm accepting your position or that I have to agree to your position, right? That's right. You're just being truly, another way to say it is you're truly open to what I'm saying and to the, to the value uh, that there might be in what I'm saying. 
but by no means are you agreeing to it and by no means are you blessing it or endorsing it. Um, a good friend of mine uh, has, that's active in the same field has written uh, a book with one of the founders of IFS, what he founded with Dick Schwartz. And I remember feeling a little bit uncomfortable about that. And finally I told my friend, you know, Bob, I have a part that's jealous that, that <laughs> you have all this success. So when Bob, Bob was, you know, was curious and listened to that, he, he didn't uh, endorse me being jealous. He didn't say, well, that's good. I'll try to make you jealous some more. But he was open to the experience of it and the fact that it was just a part of me. And I have other parts that are thrilled to see him succeeding. Yes. Well, and it seems to me that in the business environment, when you are able to get curious, it would defuse the other person because all of a sudden they feel like you care more about their position and maybe they feel like they've been heard and understood versus not ha not having that, right? That's right. And then that, that bridges over for both kinds of work that I do, both in the corporate uh, teams and family businesses, as well as the one-off mediations, because I think everyone was in the court system was amazed at the success of the court of mediation that has settled so many cases. And I think it's because what happens is when you do that so-called caucusing, when you break them into two rooms and diplomacy, what's happening is someone is coming in and bringing a ton of curiosity to tell me about what happened and why that happened to you and how that happened to you and how that impacted you, how that affected your family. And all these, and the person is really, really heard in a new way. And then the mediator commits to, I'm going to take your story to the other side. So they know not only is he hearing it, but the there's a messenger that's carrying their story. So I think that's a lot of the magic of what happens in the mediation room that led to such high settlement rates. I love the way you describe that and it makes perfect sense. When is it appropriate to cut ties with a person? Well, I talked earlier about if, if you're the leader and you're not curious in meetings about what a particular person is saying, uh, it's either you need to work on your curiosity. If they add value to the company and you're not curious, then that's your issue. If they, if you're not curious, the other things, it may be a tip to you that they don't add value to the company. So that's certainly one instance. And there's some, I mean, I am not a therapist and what I do is not therapy. I use psychological tools in the, in, in consulting, but um, there's certainly times when people have brought enough baggage from their own trauma that they need to go off and work with someone privately. And so if they're willing to do that work, that's great. I think they can be great contributors to the team. If people are unwilling to do their work and they're highly disruptive in a conflictual way, um, that's a time when it may be appropriate to, for them to move on because they're unwilling to address the causes of the conflict. Makes sense. All right, let's shift into some lightning round questions. Okay. What are you most grateful for? I think support, my ability to... Um, to, to give and receive support from colleagues, family, and friends. I, I didn't always know how to do that. So I'm grateful for having learned how to do that. What is the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? Don't make important decisions without that support. <laughs> so especially decisions for me that, are emotion, that have any emotional content, I know now from experience that parts are gonna get involved. 
parts of me are going to come in and hack. And so it's very easy to get hijacked. So I seek external support in those cases, people that can help me to unblend from those parts. Very valuable. Who's one person you would interview if you could, living or not? Albert Einstein. I, I love the little glimmers that I've seen in his quotes of his humanity, his sense of humor, his spirituality. So um, I'd like to see the man behind the genius. Do you have a top book recommendation? Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, completely changed the way that I see paradigm shifts. Uh, it was a very controversial book when it came out in the 60s, but is now pretty much accepted by many in the scientific communities being accurately accurate in how it describes how paradigm shifts happen. So it's a great book that uh, deconstructs transformation. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Check to see if I'm blended before I speak. <laughs> that means taken over by a part. <laughs> drinking your own Kool-Aid right there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Steve, what's one or two important points you would like our human capital listeners to take away from our talk today? When you're in a situation where folks on your team uh, are in conflict and that involves you or doesn't, um, Try to look to see what is, and this is the curiosity again, be curious about what is the need they're trying to fulfill by what they're doing. Uh, and the second piece would be the, what we call the U-turn. Look at yourself and ask the same question. What is the need that I'm trying to fulfill um, by what I'm doing? Um, who's driving the bus here? Who's, who's in charge? Asking it of the, on the outside and asking it on the inside. So that's the Y-O-U turn instead of the U-turn, right? That's correct. A <laughs> U-turn. That's great. Well, we call it the U-turn to return. So you do the U-turn first so that you can return to the outside. Fantastic. Well, this has been some great wisdom. I've loved our conversation today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. It was good to see you. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release a new episode of Human Capital every other Tuesday. I would love to know what you thought of this episode, so please email your comments to humancapital@goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan, a performance management technology and consulting company. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.